We commence today's program, though, in dialogue with the New York Times contributing opinion writer, Dr. Esau McCauley, about his forthcoming text, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Dr. McCauley, good to have you in the program. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's great to have you on. Um, for those who listen to this program every day, I hope that's you, 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 and you. Uh, yesterday, we had a fascinating and interesting conversation um, with um, uh, with uh, Nat Glover, who was the first African-American to be elected sheriff in the Deep South since 1888. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the former sheriff yeah. in Jacksonville, Florida, where we all witnessed uh, those uh, tragic murders of those three uh, precious black lives that were lost uh, just about a week ago now. Uh, and so it was fascinating talking to him uh, about his journey to becoming, again, uh, a sheriff, uh, uh, a black sheriff in the Deep South. I never know how this show is going to get uh, formulated and booked <laughs> from one day to the next. So here we are. Here we are today. You see where I'm going, right? Here we are today uh, yeah, yeah, talking yeah. again about the American South. Uh, wasn't planned that way. Yeah. It just happens that way sometimes. Uh, but your text, once again, is called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's yeah. Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. He told his story yesterday of hope and, and survival uh, and uh, his um, his advent into law enforcement. But the first thing that jumped out at me when I saw your book some some time ago and wanted to have you on was that title, How Far to the Promised Land. Why uh, why that title? Unpack that for me for starters, and then we'll jump from there. Well, I'm glad that you, you, you said that. The story begins, even though it's in the South, it begins in California. Mm-hmm. My grand, My father was a truck driver. And even though we were raised in Alabama, he was on a road trip out to California to deliver some some materials. Where he just he passed away. He just there was a one car accident. His truck tumbles off the overpass and he dies. And my my family immediately asked me if I would be willing to do the eulogy, which was tricky because my father had been in and out of my life throughout my entire childhood. And when he had been a part of my life, he had been abusive and he had addiction problems. So I didn't really know him. And so anyone who's ever known about you, you have to sit down with the family and begin to find out the life story of the person who passed away. And so in the process of my father learning about my father's life and his family and his history, which is my family, it took me back through the journey of my family beginning at Jim Crow. And I learned about my grandmother who was a tenant farmer who had her land stolen from her, even though she worked hard to obtain it. I learned about my grandfather on the other side, other side of my family, who was paid with, you know, books and overalls. And this is in the 1940s. And so this actually quickly became not just me delving into my family's history so that I might prepare a eulogy, but the story of a black family surviving in America. And if you're poor and you're black and you're in the South, all of American history is kind of dumped in your lap. Like Jim Crow is not an abstraction. It's something my grandparents actually experienced. I hear about what happens in, in Brown versus Board of Education and how it does and doesn't impact my family and how my, my grandparents and my mother deal with massive resistance to integration. And so what began as a story of my family really became a story about black lives from the 1920s all the way up through the war on drugs and the crack epidemic in the 1990s. Mm. Um, there's a lot to delve into, and we will. Glad I've got you for the full hour. There's a lot in this in this book, and it's something 
um, that I think is resonant or will be resonant with with many of our listeners because either you in the South or you from the South <laughs> at some point you somebody migrated north uh, and so it's a story I think we can all find a way we can all fit ourselves into your narrative and that's why I'm excited for this conversation over the next hour let me ask you right quick before I move forward uh, well let me just do this I, I can see now if I ask you this question you get started I'm going to cut you off and I don't want to do that um, the first thing that jumps out at me and I suspect the same thing uh, jumped out at at, at, at listeners and that is this notion of you being asked to eulogize your father who had not been in your life. So there are two or three questions uh, straight away that we'll get to when we come forward. Number one, at what age um, were you uh, giving this eulogy, number one? And how does one prepare, a black boy no less, prepare to eulogize his father who had not been present in his life? That's a tall order. In some ways, one could argue that is, uh, that's hubristic. Uh, for anybody in the family to have asked this brother to eulogize his father, who he really didn't know. Strange and bizarre situation to be in. How would you have handled that? We'll see what Dr. Esau McCauley uh, did and how he handled it when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Tabby Smiley just getting started in dialogue with Dr. Esau McCauley. His new book is called How Far to the Promised Land. One black family stope of a story, that is, of hope and survival in the American South. Pleased to have him on uh, for the full hour here. Uh, so Dr. McCauley was saying this moments ago that this story in, in some ways um, begins when his father, who was a trucker, uh, passes away in a, in a car accident. Uh, and he is asked to eulogize his black father, a father who had really not been present in his life. And while I love black men and I'm happy to be a black man, there are too many black men who have not been and are not, even as we speak, present in the lives of their offspring. Um, and so that makes you a daddy, doesn't necessarily make you a father. I digress on that for the moment. But um, his father had not been really present in his life. And he gets asked to do the eulogy. So I want to just work on that thing just for a second, Dr. McCauley, because it, yeah. it, it jumps out at me. So let me start with this. How old were you at this time? I mean, by this time, I'm an adult and I'm a dad. Okay. And so I have my own family. I'm about 37 years old when this happened. Okay. And my, my, my father, my grandfather was also in the ministry, but he had opposed the relationship between my mom and my dad. And so he was not really in a place to do eulogy. So it fell to me. And the reason my family asked me to do it is because they said, we know that, that I would tell the truth. Mm. Because eulogies can oftentimes just turn into dishonesty and wish fulfillment. But I wanted to speak, say something truthful and hopeful. But really, but really what made me think this is a story that the rest of the world needed to hear that you can't tell the story of, I couldn't tell the story of my father without it touching upon my life and the way that his departure sent me and my, and my family tumbling down the economic ladder. And so in the course of, of researching that eulogy, it really becomes an exploration on how does one survive in poverty when the, when the odds are stacked against you uh, in the American South. Mm hmm how did you go about let me let me well, let me just do this i, I want to share a brief story and yeah. I, I think you'll take you'll take the my point why i'm sharing this story um this audience yeah. this audience has heard me say on a number of occasions because i believe this and i, I uh, i'll I've, I've said it many times but maybe they don't know the origin of of where it came uh, from um but i've said this repeatedly and i've written about it in, in my books one book in particular that when it comes to eulogizing people and looking at the lives we live and the legacies that we leave 
my frame is simply this, that some of us is not the sum of us. Yeah. You got me? Uh, the, yeah. the S-O-M-E of us is not the S-U-M of us. And none of us yes. wants to be judged by the S-O-M-E. You don't. Your father yeah. wouldn't have wanted that. I don't want it. Nobody wants to be judged by the S-O-M-E of our lives. We want to be judged by the S-U-M, yeah. the sum total of all that we've done. Yeah. Don't don't pick out the worst. None of us are really our worst acts or our worst deeds anyway. That's not fundamentally who we are. Uh, that's a part of who we are. It's some of who we are. It's the S-O-M-E, not the S-U-M. So, uh, I've said that uh, in, in in relation to a number of things over the over the course of my career, but that story, the genesis of that story is simply this: I was asked by a family one time to give a eulogy uh, for uh, a brother who had died, and he really hadn't done much with his life. He'd been in all kinds of trouble and had all kinds of issues. Uh, and the family asked me to do it, I guess, in part because one, I was a friend of the family writ large, but secondly, I'm a personality, and so. They figured if anybody could eulogize this Negro, maybe Tavis can figure something out because he really <laughs> he really had lived a, a life that made it easy to, to, to eulogize them. By the way, let me detour just for a quick second and say to the audience right now that in many respects, you write your own eulogy. You write yeah. your own eulogy. If you want folk yeah. to say X, Y, and Z about you, then live a life <laughs> where they can say X, yeah. Y, and Z about you. So in many respects, you, we, we write our own eulogies by the lives that we live and the legacies of game that we leave. Uh, and so I, 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 I agreed to do the eulogy. Uh, I'd met this brother as a, as a friend of this family over a number of occasions, but really didn't know him either. So I didn't know him any more than you knew your father. So here I am being tasked and being asked to do a eulogy for somebody I really didn't know and who hadn't lived the most, you know, upstanding life. And long story yeah. short, what I came to is I, as I talked to the family and learned more about him, what I came to was that reality. Okay, this is going to be my theme, that some of us is not the sum of us, that every one of us has made mistakes. We've all done things that we regret, but every one of us is a child of God. Every one of us is somebody's kid, and we are who we are because somebody loved us. Uh, and so that's the direction I went in, that S-O-M-E versus S-U-M. And it worked, and the family loved it, and the rest is history, and I ended up writing about that again well, in one of my books. But, but, but I raised that because that's the way I had to approach eulogizing somebody I did not know. Having said that, I'm still deeply curious now about how you eulogized yeah. your father who you really didn't know. Well, one of the interesting things is you touched on one of the central themes of the book. Because one of the things that happens is when you grow up in poverty, like I did, and you kind of make it to the middle class, and you're a New York Times writer, people want to know your story. How mm -hmm. did you do it? Because they think that the only lives that are valuable are the lives that they deem successful. Sure. And in the course of writing this eulogy, I discovered the very same thing that you discovered. That my father wasn't perfect. He made a bunch of mistakes. But he was someone who was striving towards something. Mm. And so at the beginning of the book, you meet him as, the, as a villain, this guy who's kind of been on drugs, who's made these mistakes. But in the middle of the book, I tell a little bit about his family history that I didn't learn until he passed away, which is namely, he had a father that abandoned him. And one of his, the last things this father ever told him was that he was no good and he was never going to be anything. Mm. And I began to think, if someone told you that as a child, how did that impact you? And even though he left us a thousand times, which he did in my childhood, he kept coming back. And I think as an adult, I see him coming back as an attempt to be something that he couldn't quite obtain. In other words, as a kid, he'd leave and he'd come back, he'd leave and he'd come back. I thought he did that to mess with us because he hated us. But I think he was trying to be the man that he couldn't figure out how to be. 
and what I try to get at in this eulogy is, is that striving, that attempt to be more than what you are, is just as important and instructive as the people who are successful. Mm. And so what I was trying to get at is the very people in society that we want to toss to the side are the people whose lives matter. So, for example, my, my, grand, my father was good at basketball. And because he was good at basketball, they passed him along in school and never taught him how to read and write properly. Mm. Well, whose fault is that? Mm -hmm. So in other words, we begin to look at people as these villains and we don't always realize that sometimes the villains are created. And one of the things that adulthood does is it gives you sympathy to look at a human life, even life of my father and say, he might not have been the best dad to me. He might was a bad dad in many ways, mm -hmm. but I can understand what America did to my father and what America did to a lot of black men and a lot of black women in the South. And that's why it's called How Far to the Promised Land. It's this story of all the obstacles that life and circumstance puts in the way of black flourishing mm. and, and the ways in which we need to change and become a better society if we want to actually be a land of opportunity. Brother, you preaching now. I, I didn't want to interrupt because you were you on a roll. Um, as we say around here, this is getting good. Uh, let me let me let me interrogate uh, two or three things you said a moment ago. Uh, I wonder how many black men like your father um, live lives where they are trying to be, fighting to become the man they want to be, but don't quite know how to do that. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the hard things to do when you tell a story like this, Tapas, is we want to divide. We either want to say it's all society. Society makes us do the bad things that we do, mm -hmm. or it's all personal responsibility. And we and we like to slide into one of these easy either or kind of binaries. But in reality, my father and the lives of many black people that that are recounted in the book are a mixture of circumstances and decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to toss all the responsibility, because you know what? There was a lot of black men in the South who were mistreated by society who stayed with their family. Yeah. yeah. And so how do we balance both of those things out in telling the story, and how do we point towards how we as a people can, can give people the tools? But here's the other thing. Like, my father, nobody in the 1970s is going to go to therapy deal with parental trauma because of abandonment a black man in the 70s going to therapy he didn't have the resources mm -hmm. but we have the resources to be in, to begin to do better and to think better as a people yeah uh, as you were talking moments ago i was just sitting here still uh processing how pervasive i think this one line has been for so many black people you ain't no good your daddy wasn't no good your granddaddy yep. wasn't no good, and you ain't never going to be nothing. Every single yep. one of us has heard that said to us or have heard it said to some other black person in our family or some other family, but that line that I just uh, uh, just laid out that you referenced earlier is a line that every Negro has heard at some point, that you ain't no good, yeah. your daddy wasn't no good, and you ain't never going to be nothing. We, we, were we, were, we were either told that by somebody, some adult in our family, or we could have been told that by some white counselor, some white teacher, some white person at school or someplace else. Yeah. But I suspect if I could do some research on this, uh, I don't have any empirical data in front of me, but I know a whole lot of black folk have heard that commentary from somebody at some point in their lives. And I think about that and this particular juxtaposition. I was talking to my friend Cornel West the other day, 
Uh, and he said something I've heard him say a thousand times as a professor in the Ivy League for most of his career at Harvard and Princeton and beyond. Um, he used, he, he, he's, he's, we, we laugh all the time when he, he, he says to me in, in his own way that it's not that these white kids are any smarter, any more gifted, any more talented than our kids. You know what the difference is? The difference is rather than somebody telling them they ain't no good and they ain't never going to be nothing, they get the exact opposite. You are brilliant. You are smart. You are a leader. You are all that and then some. And the more they get told that, they believe that. So by the time they get to Harvard or Princeton or the Ivy League, you can't tell them nothing because they've been told their whole lives how special they are, how smart they are. And then, as Dr. West would put it, when they find themselves in a situation in life or in the classroom uh, where their world rests on pudding, that's that's Westian, where they're in this sort of yeah. quicksand, they don't know what to do because they've been told their whole lives yeah. how gifted and special and talented they are. They're, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin. You take my point. You want to comment yeah. on that? Yeah. In, in the book, I talk about my first day in high school. It's the, it's the same high school that my mom went to and, and that my family goes to this school. And the first day of school, we're sitting there in an auditorium. And there's 400 of us. And the first thing the principal says to us in that first orientation meeting is, there's 400 of you here. Half of you won't graduate. Mm. You can end up in debt or in jail. And when I thought about that, I heard it as half of y'all ain't no good. Mm-hmm. Just like you said. And what I, what I realized now is it wasn't those, and he was, interestingly enough, only about half of us graduated. But it wasn't because we didn't care. It's because society, it's things that happen in our lives that got in the way of flourishing. So another, instead of saying, we know that you young black boys and girls face innumerable circumstances, we're going to give you the resources that you, you need to succeed. We were told that half of us are doomed, like it's a Russian roulette game. Mm-hmm. And so I do think one of the hardest things for parents to do, and one of the stars of the book is my mother, who convinces all of her four children that no matter what anybody else says about you, you don't let anybody put a a, a seed on your abilities. Mm-hmm. And I do think that one of the things that we need and one of the things I try to get at in the book is how do we create hope for young black children when all they see and all they hear is that the things are hopeless and there's no future for them. Mm-hmm. That that That's a tall order, particularly in a world where it seems to me and there's data that I could point to that underscores this, that people are feeling more hopeless now than they ever had. And I'm not even talking just about black folk right now. Um, there are studies yeah. and surveys and polls that indicate that most Americans, a majority, not quite a plurality, but a majority of Americans now, uh, for the first time ever, believe that America's best days are behind it and hopelessness is starting to set in. That's a dangerous thing for a democracy yeah. uh, when a significant yeah. slice of your demos feels hopeless um but what what what's what, what what say you though about how to navigate in this particular american moment um this increasing and creeping hopelessness that so many fellow citizens feel i think that america is struggling with hope hopefulness because we have a lot of unprocessed, unprocessed trauma mm. and it, it's because we uh, we lives can only be held in place by violence mm-hmm and America likes to lie about its past and the things that it's done, particularly to black people. And so there's a story that we keep telling ourselves about who we are and how great we are and how virtuous we are that, is, that runs counter to the facts. Mm. And we're in this place now where the attempt to tell that truth, to put it in, into schools and universities, is being suppressed on every side. 
And so because we are lying about our past, we can't accept our present and we can't move forward toward our, our future. Mm. And the first thing that America needs to be able to do is to fully own from one end of this country to the other what this republic has done to black people, not just black people, to indigenous people, to, to our Asian American brothers and sisters, to our Latin American brothers and sisters. We have, as a country, been capable of tremendous evil. And until we learn to own and repent of that evil, we can't find our way towards truth. Now, I've written a lot of books and a lot of articles about that kind of reality. Mm-hmm. But what I was trying to do is to say, rather than give you a book of statistics, let me, let me just tell you the story of one black family. And through seeing what this black family goes through, you begin to see America. And I genuinely believe, we're talking, you talked about it yesterday. The, the, the shooting that happened in Jacksonville is not an isolated incident. Mm-hmm. It arises out of a context of white supremacy that, 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 that peaks whenever there's a fear of, of loss of power. It's, there's no, there's no, sorry, there's no, it's no accident that every single time we get close to another election cycle, we get into another round of violence like this. Mm-hmm. So we got to own it so we can begin to imagine a different future. And until we do that, we'll feel helpless that we keep repeating the same things over and over again. Oh, this is rich. This is rich. Uh, when we come forward, I, I want to come uh, straight away to this notion of black flourishing uh, that Dr. Esau McCauley referenced earlier. It's a beautiful phrase, uh, a lot easier said than done. But I want to talk about this notion of black flourishing when we come forward. I guest in this hour, Dr. Esau McCauley. His new book is called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. You are listening to Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley, Tavis Smiley, ranked number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Dr. Esau McCauley is author of the new book, not even out yet. Uh, for those who listen to this program regularly, uh, once again, I hope that's you, 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 and all of you. Um, you will know that we make a great effort here, and I am fortunate to have relationships. Um, and uh, because of those relationships, we give it, we give you an opportunity to hear authors before the books even come out. Uh, and uh, I am humbled by all these personalities who uh, choose this show as a platform to discuss their text before they even hit um, uh, hit the hit the bookstore or online these days. His book is called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Doesn't even drop until September the 12th, but you're hearing him today on August 31st. Uh, as uh, Dr. McCauley has been kind enough to give us uh, a conversation again before the book even comes out. Once again, the title, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. The advantage of hearing these things early is that you can get your uh, pre-ordered copy of the book before it sells out. So we bring it to you early so you can be first in line. And I'm delighted um, that Dr. McCauley and others um, uh, think enough of this program to give us a chance to uh, to. Uh, uh, query them uh, before their before their books even uh, are available that said there are a couple of things you mentioned before the break that i want to come straight to we'll get to black flourishing in a moment uh, as i promised but uh, i've got two young brothers that work with me here uh, on this program miles and jd and we were in a, a robust conversation during the break uh, dr mccauley 
Uh, about that point you made earlier that I'm going to ask you to lean on a little heavier because these are two young cats and it resonated with them. So, I mean, uh, that means something to me. When stuff hits them, it gets my attention. Um, and they were just really uh, talking to me moments ago about this powerful point you made that while we focus on success and we celebrate success, and I get that, and we're, we, yeah. we live in a success culture, what resonated with them was your point that the striving matters. That the striving matters and celebrating and focusing and rewarding and then uplifting and amplifying the striving would do so much more for everyday people who may never be Jay-Z or Beyonce or whoever. Uh, But the striving in their lives really matters. So I'm going to ask you to lean on that a little harder if you can. Yes. When they asked me if I would be interested in writing a memoir, I said I would do it. But if I did it, I wasn't going to be the star of the story. Mm-hmm. And what I, what, I, what I wanted to say is that the people in my life, the people who grew up in my neighborhood, they're not just object lessons that are teaching the person who makes it how to survive, that their lives are meaningful in and of themselves. For example, I told the story of my grandmother, and, and, and my great-grandmother, Sophia. She, she, she was um, born in the 1920s. She grew up, and they never taught her to read, because you never taught a black They didn't teach black women how to read. But she worked, she worked nights. She, she would pick cotton during the day do um, midwifing in the evening, and then clean houses. And she did all of that, and she managed to buy her own piece of property in the 1930s in, in, the, in the South. Mm-hmm. She had her own place. But because she couldn't read, the, the, the mortgage loan that she, she signed was ultimately unjust. And when she dies, that land is actually taken from my family, given back to the white family that, that she made the loan out to. Mm. Now, somebody might look at that story and say, well, this woman, she, she, she worked three jobs, she bought land, and then the family lost it. Therefore, her life was a failure. But I say that that woman lived a life with dignity mm. and respect, and she fought to make something of herself. And there's something about that striving that she inculcated in our family that was passed down to me. And so what I want to say is we can't look at material success as the only definition of importance. But lives lived in, with integrity have their own value. You talked about it. That everybody is a child of God. Mm-hmm. And every single person who's born is trying to make some kind of sense of what does it mean to be black in America. And in the book, I just go by and I tell these stories about people in my in my life who who – you might not think of them as successful, but they mean something to me. Mm-hmm. And those stories are the stories that shape me and who I am. And I didn't survive in my neighborhood because I was the best of us. There was tons of people who were equally as talented, equally as gifted as anyone who's ever grew up in poverty can tell you that. Mm-hmm. That you, you, you aren't special. You're responsible to remember. And part of what I was trying to do in, in How Far to the Promised Land is to fill the responsibility that my mama gave to me. She said, when you get where you're going, don't forget where you came from. Mm. And this book is about showing people that, that black people in particular remember our communities. I, I'll leave it alone with this. That's the reason why you listen to any rap song, all they do is they, they, they represent their city, their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They want people to know where they came from and not to turn their eyes from it. We could do a whole show just on that one frame, the responsibility that we have to remember. The responsibility to remember it could be a three-hour show uh, in and of itself, it's a powerful frame. I'll just say it again so folk can noodle on it the rest of the day. Um, the responsibility that each of us has to simply remember. As I listen to you share this. You know, you know yeah. oh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. You go. I think that what <laughs> happens is when people get a little bit of money, 
they can start to remember differently than what actually happened. <laughs> now, now you're preaching. Now you're preaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you can begin to think that you were special. Like, no, brother, you weren't that special. There was 15 of you in your neighborhood. Yeah, man. And so I, th- I, I, think, I think that what we really have to do is every door that we open, we got to make sure it doesn't shut behind us. Yes, 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 yes. And we got to make sure that we we continue to create pathways to flourishing. Now, you made the point a moment ago about, uh, uh, you told the story, I should say, of what you told the publishers when they asked you about writing a memoir. You said, yeah, I'll write one, but I ain't going to be the star of the story. Um, I had written one memoir, what I know for sure, that had done quite well, jumped to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, and some years later, they asked me to write uh, a second memoir. And I told them, uh, as you did, I will write a second one um, but it's not going to be what you want. And they were asking me to write a second memoir on the occasion of my 20th anniversary uh, as a broadcaster, and there were all kinds of celebrations. Tavis had been doing this for 20 years, and a lot of great stuff was happening around that time. Uh, and on that occasion, they asked me what I considered writing another text, and so I agreed to do it. Um, but that's when I wrote the book called Fail Up. Uh, and, and, and to yeah. your point about not forgetting all that I had endured, the book was not about the 20... Uh, great uh, stories I wanted to share on the occasion of this 20th anniversary, but I went the other direction. These are the 20 worst mistakes I have made in my life as I have (laughs) failed my way up. And so the book is called Fail Up. And if you read that book, you see the 20 worst mistakes I've ever made in my life, or 20 of them, because God knows there are more than 20. But those 20 (laughs) mistakes uh, and the lessons I learned from them allowed me, and still, frankly, are allowing me to fail my way up. So I, w- I went at it a different way like you did, and so I, I celebrate and I, I hear what you're saying. Let me ask you a quick question before I move forward here. As I listen to you tell these stories, it's it's an, it's important uh, uh, to underscore, I think, the value of knowing, understanding, and digging into your family history. Now, this, is be- this has become popularized in terms of um, you know, there's Skip Gates with this TV program, Finding Your Roots, and all kinds of people now yeah. are doing the Ancestry.com thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm putting my finger on something different, not just knowing the lineage, but knowing your family history. And as I hear you tell yeah. these stories that are laid out in this book, uh, How Far to the Promised Land, it reminds me uh, not just that we have a responsibility to remember, but that we have a responsibility first to know, to know our family yeah. history, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to do was to create a different future for my children. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have a, a, a father who abandoned them. But what I also recognize is that my children, even if they benefit, like we, my, they won't grow up the way that I grew up. But one thing that happens when you grow up the way that I did, you're connected to the poor mm-hmm. and that you can never separate yourself from that reality. And I wanted my children to be tied to this black past. Because every black generation, to me, is that we, we receive the benefits of the labors of our ancestors. Yes. And so when I'm, 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 I was born in the 70s. I'm a child, late 70s, early 80s. I'm a child of the civil rights movement. I'm responsible for what they did. And so part of what me learning my family history was to say that Sophia's sacrifice, that's my grandmother who mm-hmm. lost her land, her sacrifice could not be in vain. And so what I think history is, History is responsibility, but history is also the opportunity to chart a new path. Yeah. Before, on my, on, my, on my father's side of the family, he left me, his father left him, and that goes all the way back up. At yeah. some point, that has to stop. Exactly. And so yeah. learning history creates responsibility to, to, to do something with the sacrifices that people made for you. Yeah. 
but it also gives you a chance to chart a new path because you're not defined by the mistakes that the people yes. who perceived you made. We're talking about black flourishing. Uh, more when we come forward. Dr. Esau McCauley on Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth. The truth. Speaking, Speaking the, truth. the truth. This, this is the Tavis the Smiley, Smiley Show. Show. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. I guess it's Dr. Esau McCauley on Tavis Smiley. And um, you said something earlier. I thought I heard you say, and I wanted to come back to it. The flip side of your uh, grandmother, Sophia, uh, losing her land. And by the way, it's your story, not mine. But I'm not so sure she lost that land. They stole that land when they, yeah. when they gave her a bad deal like that. It wasn't lost. It was stolen. Yeah. But I, I digress on that point. Um, but that, did I hear you reference earlier that somebody else in your family was paid in books? My grandfather was a tenant farmer. He started, he, he, well, when he was a child, he worked, he worked, he, he picked cotton starting at the age of four. And his only payment was that they gave him a pair of overalls. Uh, he said a pair of shoes and some books. And his father, his, his father, who was, his grandfather who was raising him was, had to, out of his 40% of what he got from the, from, from the farm, pay for all the fee, do all of the stuff. And every year, the the guy, the white guy who owned the farm, would say, "You just broke even." Mm-hmm. So he was cheated too, and he wasn't making any money. It was basically functional slavery in the 1920s, and he he ends up leaving that because that that my great grandfather goes and works nights cleaning houses, and he saves up enough money to go to the guy. The guy was named Rude Miller. He he would work at night. Pick cotton all day, work at night. One day he goes to the guy who owns the tenant farm and says, we don't work here no more. And he takes his six kids and his wife and they go into the city because he saved up enough money to buy a house in his burgeoning black community in Huntsville, Alabama. Mm. And that's how my family gets off the cotton field. Wow. And so once again, that story <laughs> is lost in history. Yeah. But but that that moment where he, 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 he says, I don't want to pick cotton and have my family pick cotton forever. So I'm going to work night. And then he gets to Huntsville, where, where I grow up, and he digs ditches for the city. Mm-hmm. And he lives in this black community next to this it was segregation, next to this segregated school. Now, here again, that community that was built there, that black community with the segregated school, is eventually lost because the city needs that, that land to build an overpass. And so eventually that entire black community that was there is wiped out. They have to move. I'm in the domain. Mm-hmm. Now, once again, you might say, well, that seems like a lost story. But that's how my grandfather got an education that leads to a better life for my family. Yeah. And so when I'm talking about how each one of these stories matters, it's that these black lives that are lost to history are these incremental steps forward that makes it possible for me to be on something like the Davis Miley radio show. No, you're kind, brother. It's a, it's a, it's a rich and powerful narrative, and I'm just honored to have a chance to sort of unpack it with you. As you were talking about your grandfather, before we come forward, I was just thinking uh, about Roots. For those who recall that that epic saga uh, from Alex Haley, your yeah. grandfather did. He made a Chicken George move, right? He, he did Chicken George, yeah. man. He, <laughs> he 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 saved up his money and came back and said, "We out of here." And if you recall that scene, one of the great scenes in that Roots saga, when Chicken George shows back up. And he is packing up his family. We getting out of here. And they go to Henning, Tennessee. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful moment in that story. I digress. Our remaining moments with Dr. Esau McCauley when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig? 
Just a few minutes left in this hour, which has been nothing but rich. Dr. Esau McCauley's new text dropping September 12th is called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Um, Let me close with this, I think, Dr. McCauley, and that is what black flourishing looks like to you in real time. Yes. When I got to college, it meant a lot because I was one of the first ones for my family to go, my sister before me and then me. And so I came thinking that everybody who went to college had gone through that same kind of up-through-the-mud reality. And it wasn't until I got to college that I saw things like legacy admissions and people whose families had forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year to pay for tuition. Mm-hmm. And I realized that some of my white colleagues were kind of messed around in high school. They kind of stumped. They didn't take college seriously. They had a time to figure themselves out and then make something of themselves. I didn't know you could have a C average and go to college. <laughs> and for me, I, I realized that I thought that justice was exceptional black people flourishing. And for me, justice is room for black people to stumble around and make some mistakes and still be successful. Mm. In my community, the stakes were just too high. There wasn't room to be a kid. You couldn't make a mistake. You do one wrong thing, and your life was ripped apart. And so I guess what I wanted to say is, for me, flourishing is ordinary black people having enough time and space to find themselves. And that's a luxury that a lot of black people don't have. Yeah. We are one mistake in your counseled society as it relates to black black people making mistakes. Yeah. So to me, justice is space for ordinary black people to flourish. Yeah. Um, let me close on this note. Uh, I'm getting all kind of messages that I don't have time to really get to. And there's some good ones. But I want to just read this um, because I, I know there are people who are listening Uh, who are wrestling with this even as we speak, and I want to offer them a note of hope, uh, allow you to offer them a note of hope as we wrap this conversation. Um, Quoting from one of our listeners, Tavis, I literally spoke with a friend last night who talked about his grandmother telling him he'd never be anything. And although he's successful now, he is still emotionally charged by his grandmother's harsh words. So for those who are still emotionally charged by the harsh words somebody spoke to them, you say what? that nobody gets to define who you are but God, and God has spoken to you and called you his son or his daughter, and that our past and the lies that people told about us do not have to define us, and that we can write our own future. And one of the things that you can't do, you can't change a, you can't change your past, but you can end your past, hold over you, and be free to create a new future for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, given the condition of black America right now, and there's all kind of data that points to the fact that we're in obviously a tough, tough, tough spot, tough situation. Do you see the continual flourishing of black people? Yeah, because, you know, if I were, if I were to look at what's going on in society and derive my hope from there, I would have given up on this thing a a long time ago, Yeah, but I'm a, I'm a Christian and I believe there's a God that orders the affairs of humanity and that he has not abandoned any of his people. And particularly he has not abandoned his black and brown people. So there, there is hope because the United States is not sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what's been able to keep me going. It's what kept my ancestors going during the Civil Rights Movement. And behind that, during slavery, when black people met in hush harbors and, and gathered to worship in secret. And so that's the source mm-hmm. of my hope. I can't speak to everybody else's hope. Nope. I just told somebody a couple of days ago, don't ever put the flag above the cross. Don't put the flag there we go. <laughs> above the cross. <laughs> I digress. Dr. Esau McCauley, his book is called 
How Far to the Promised Land. Love that title. How Far to the Promised Land. One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. This conversation was deeper and richer than I even thought. Dr. McCauley, I appreciate you, sir. Congrats on the text coming out September the 12th, and all the best to you. Thank you for having me. My great honor. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.